Hey everybody, thanks for joining us here at STSA Church Online, where I am glad that you are here with us today, and I am also glad that I am here with us today as well, because as many of you know, um, I've been off for the past several weeks, something I do every summer. Uh, just take a few weeks off to kind of recharge and reset, and thanks be to God I was able to do that, and I am pumped up to be back and starting this study here today on the life of Elijah, a humbled hero. And we are going to look at the life of this great man of God. And we're going to look at it, it's going to be less of like a Bible study and think of it more of like as a docu-series. We're going to each week dig into this man's life and see who he was and what made him tick. What you're going to see is a great, great man of God who did great things for God um, and how it is that he was able to do that. And if you love action movies, okay, if you love superhero movies, if you love good guys defeating bad guys, I'm telling you, man, you are going to love Life of Elijah because Elijah was a true, true hero. He's like the Bible's version of like Chuck Norris, okay? He's a guy who commanded fire to come down from heaven and defeat all the bad guys. He's someone who also commanded a drought for three and a half years. And he said, no rain for three and a half years. And then later on, he said the exact opposite. He said, rain come now. And the rain came. He's someone who raised the dead. In fact, Elijah, when he himself was dying, he didn't die like a normal person. Man, he died like a stud. Elijah didn't just go into the ground. He took a chariot of fire up into the heavens. And the best thing about Elijah is he did all these things and we never once read about how he was like bitten by like a magical spider to get these powers or like he was in a nuclear blast of some sort. He actually did all these things and he didn't even have a catchy catchphrase, if you can imagine that. I think that if you study the life of Elijah, you'll no more think of heroes as people with capes and magical powers. You'll think of Elijah instead. So... With that, let's jump right in and let's start by first defining the word hero, a word which we hear a lot these days and I believe is probably overused. The dictionary defines hero as this, a character, real or fictional, who in the face of danger and adversity or from a position of weakness displays courage and the will for self-sacrifice that is heroism for some greater good of all humanity. You'll notice that the key here is that someone who shows courage and self-sacrifice in the face of danger or some kind of adversity. It's kind of the opposite how we think of heroes. Okay, today we think of heroes as people who have these superhuman powers, okay, or people who are stronger than everyone else. And, and no, the word hero doesn't mean that at all. It actually means someone who has no superhuman powers, someone who comes from a position of adversity, but shows tremendous strength and courage in the face of it for the sake of the greater good. And that's Elijah. Okay, we're going to see about Elijah. We first read about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll see him introduced in verse 1. And look what it says about Elijah. It says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. That's his introduction. Okay, and all we know about him, we don't know anything about his parents or his upbringing. We know he's a Tishbite, which means that he's from a city called Tishbe. Now, here's the thing about Tishbe. You can look it up online and you won't read anything. You won't find much about it. Most people would, would say that Tishbe... They don't even know where it is, okay? And people can guess and scholars can guess it may have been this or this. But Tishbe is a city that has been erased from history because it had no significance to it whatsoever. So here we have Elijah, the Tishbite, a man who came literally from the middle of nowhere, okay? Is how another way of saying this. And he has no background. He has no pedigree. He has no nothing that's special about him 
but he shows up in the midst of a very difficult time in the history of Israel. And even though we don't know what was going on in Tishbe, because we don't really know anything about it, we do know what was going on in the greater context of the history of God's people. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, it isn't good. For over a hundred years, okay, for Israel's history, for over a hundred years, Israel had three kings. Okay, so Israel in the beginning, you know, was, was in slavery, and then they had the judges, and then they started the period of the kings. So for a period of a hundred years, they had three kings. The first was Saul, the second was David, the third was Solomon. Okay, so let's start kind of the history right there. So between Saul and then David and Solomon, 100 years where the kingdom was united. And for the most part, things were okay. They had their problems, but for the most part, okay, things were going in the right direction. After Solomon passed, the kingdom got divided into two, the northern kingdom and the southern. The northern is called Israel, okay? So even though it was all one nation of Israel, the northern, which was the majority, okay, it was 10 out of the 12 tribes, was called Israel, and the bottom half was called Judah. And Judah was where Jerusalem was. So even though the north was bigger, the south was like more significant or prominent. So during this period, after they had the 100 years, they were all together, and then they had the split. And then each of the two kingdoms, the north and the south, eventually got taken into captivity by either the Assyrians or the Babylonians. So let's look at this period between when, when Israel split into two kingdoms to when they were taken into captivity. The northern kingdom, which is Israel, that was a period of 200 years, roughly. And during that period of 200 years, Israel, the northern kingdom, had 19 kings rule over it. Of those 19 kings... The scriptures tell us that every single one of them was wicked. Every single one of them was evil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. Think about that for a second. Back to back to back to back to back to back to back. 19 times, 19 kings, back to back to back to back. Each one worse than the one before. We complain if we have four tough years around here, okay? These guys had 19 straight kings, not for four-year terms, but for life terms, each one was wicked. The southern kingdom, which isn't really the focus of our study, we're going to be focusing on the northern, but just to give you some uh, comparison, the southern kingdom of Judah had a, had a, was, was taken captive later, so their period was 300 years. And in those 300 years, they had 17 kings, and they were about 50-50. Eight followed the Lord, nine were wicked, okay? Let's go back to the northern kingdom. That's where our study takes place. That's where Elijah, um, his story takes place. So in both kingdoms, but again, we're going to focus on the north, because the, the, the kings were wicked and because the people did so many bad things and strayed from the ways of God, God would send them prophets. And the goal of the prophet was to explain to the people the ways of God and to call them to repentance. Now, kings did not like prophets for the most part, especially the wicked ones, because the prophets, their job was basically to criticize the king and to say what he was doing wrong. And their job was to say, you know what? The king is leading us in the wrong direction. We're worshiping idols. We're not believing in God. So kings hated, for the most part, prophets. Now, today, we, we, it's hard for us to understand this because today it's kind of second nature for us to criticize people in leadership, especially people who are in elected offices. It's our nature. And in fact, some people actually prefer it that way. And some people, if they couldn't criticize, if they didn't have anything to criticize, they probably wouldn't feel as happy as if they did. But at the time, criticizing the king was risking your life. Okay, they could take you out 
in a second if they wanted to. So at best, prophets were tolerated by kings, but most of them were not liked at all and were hated by the kings because it was their job to call out evil. And when it comes to the kings of Israel, there was plenty of evil to call out. Okay, we're going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 13, and we're going to quickly review some of the early kings. We're going to start with Jeroboam. He was the first of the kings after Solomon. So again, you had Saul, David, Solomon, and then the split. Jeroboam was the first in this northern kingdom. And look what it says about Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13, verse 33. It says, After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated them, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Jeroboam was the first of these kings, and he started planting the seeds for evil in the kingdom. And he basically said, okay, you can worship God, and that's good, and the, you, but there's also other options. And he started to make his own priests, okay? And he started to consecrate his, his own temples and make his, anyone who wanted to be a priest, okay, could be a priest. So he led the way to like, well, there's options in worship. It doesn't just have to be the way that we were raised. He stays king for 22 years. After that, his son Nadab reigns. Look what it says about him. First Kings 15, 25. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. So Nadab comes along. Okay, and he was no better than his dad. He continued those ways, but he only lasted two years. And if you want to know why he lasted two years, look at the next verse, verse 27. Then Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. So Nadab, the king... Okay, so you had evil King Jeroboam, evil King Nadab, and then he was assassinated by Basha. Remember, this is God's people right here, okay? Doing evil, assassinating the king. Verse 29, and, and it was so when he became king, this is Basha now, that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He did not lead to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. Israel people of God. That's your king? Okay? Assassinated the other guy and then not just assassinated him but wiped out his whole family and his whole family tree? Like erased them and did not leave anyone that breathed? Oh my goodness, this is the people of God? This is their leader? It gets worse. Next king is a guy named Elah. Elah, 1 Kings 16 verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Terzah. Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terzah. So here you have Elah, who becomes king, and then one day, as the scripture says, he's drinking himself drunk. Okay, drinking himself drunk. This is the king, and another guy who's a commander in his army conspires against him. And look what happens next, verse 10. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Basha. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives or of his friends. That's kind of the what goes around, what comes, what goes around, comes around, okay, kind of a thing. Where what that guy did, Elah did to the guy before, Zimri 
okay, did to him and he wiped out, after conspiring against him and killing him, he wiped out his entire uh, family. These are the leaders of God's people. We're talking drunkenness. We're talking conspiracy. We're talking murder. We're talking killing of the innocent. Like, what happened to the days of Abraham and Moses and David? Like, where are those days? Where are those leaders? Well, it gets even worse, okay? Verse 25, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. Now, we don't know what Omri did to get this title and say he was worse than all before him, but oh my goodness, it's got to be bad. The other guys were horrible people, and Omri, it says, did even worse than them. And while we don't know exactly what he did, the next verse tells us a clue, or at least gives us a hint of what it is that he brought into the world that caused a lot of problems. Look at verse 28. Omri eventually rested with his fathers and was buried in, in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. Every hero needs a villain to fight against. Okay, it wouldn't be much of an action movie unless there was a good guy and a bad guy. Ahab is our bad guy. After six decades of evil kings, of murder, conspiracy, deception, idolatry, evil, all kinds of wicked stuff, after six decades, here comes Ahab. And believe it or not, the worst is yet to come. Verse 29. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And again, at this point, it doesn't tell us exactly what he did. But the next verse, again, gives us a clue and it starts to help develop our story. Verse 31. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Okay, let's pause this story here for a second. <clears throat> How many of Israel's previous kings were married? The answer, all of them. <clears throat> how many of Israel's previous kings who were married, how many of them, their wives are mentioned by name? The answer, zero. Only Jezebel. And not just we hear her name, but her lineage. And the implication here is that Ahab is bad news and Jezebel is the problem. Because what you see here about Jezebel she took Israel to a new level of bad, okay? Is Ahab and Jezebel, I'm not blaming just her, okay, both of them together, but Jezebel would be the kind of the, the, the catalyst for it. Because Jezebel, what we see is that she was a daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. She was from a foreign land, and she was from the land of Sidon, okay? You've heard of Tyre and Sidon in the New Testament. And Sidon was known for its worship of the god Baal. And there were so many gods around the world and so many of those gods entered into Israel, but none as bad and as stayed as long and caused as much damage as Baal. He was the worst of the worst of all the idols. And Jezebel was the one who brought him in. Think of it like she was the one, imagine the person who brought, I was think of this, the person who brought coronavirus into this world, the one person who brought coronavirus and infected the world and turned the world upside down. 
Jezebel was that person for Israel. Baal was a plague in Israel for years, and Jezebel was the one that brought him in. This is why God made such a big deal in the Old Testament about intermarriage and about how the people from the other cultures and from the other nations, this is why, okay? It was because God knew. God was actually like the one doing the first, like the quarantining, okay? That's what it was. It was quarantining. It was quarantining before it was a cool thing to do and social distancing before it was a cool thing to do. God is saying those people are infected. So you know what? For your own sake, stay away from the infected people. They didn't have the masks and the shields and the cool stuff that we have today. So God said, those people, they're infected with this idolatry. Stay away. Keep them away. Keep them not just six feet away. Keep them 600 feet. Keep them 600 miles. Keep them as far away as possible because they are going to cause problems. And that's exactly what we see here with Jezebel. People of God didn't listen. Ahab took a wife from a foreign land and had led the people of God to its lowest state. We talked about how they were evil and wicked and low and bad. Well, Ahab and Jezebel take them to the lowest of the lowest places. Look at this next verse, verse 32 and 33. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. You know why what Ahab did is worse than everyone before him? Look, everyone else before him, starting with Jeroboam and all the way down, allowed for worship of the bad guys, allowed for idolatry. It's okay. Like you could have two ways. What Ahab and Jezebel did is they made it the official state religion for the first time in the history of God's people. The official state religion had become Baal worship. Because that's what the king was doing, and that's what the queen was doing, and now it was no more like, you can have this or that. Now, what historians say is that less than 1% of Israel at this time, less than 1% of the people of God, who, who God parted the Red Sea and took them out of slavery, and God sent them miracle after miracle after miracle, who God took care of them, says, my own special people, less than 1% of those people were worshiping the God of Israel, and the rest of them had gone the way of Baal and the idol worship. That's not good. That's not good. And that's the scene onto which Elijah walks into. So that's why you got to understand the context. Because until you understand the low point, the darkness, the evil, the wickedness, and then you see Elijah, part of that 1%, who says, not on my watch. Not on my watch am I going to allow the people of Israel, the God of Israel, to be forgotten by his own people. And what you see is what God does. Okay, this formula is the same. This formula is the same. When times are dark, God's formula is not to send an army of angels. That's what we want. Send an army of angels, get rid of all the bad guys. It's not what God does. God does not send an earthquake to swallow up all the evil. It's not what he does. He does not send a flood to wipe out the earth. That was kind of like a one and done kind of a deal back with Noah. But ever since then, God says, when there's darkness, when there is evil, the way that I work is always the same. And it's this. God fights darkness by sending a soldier of light. God fights darkness by sending a soldier of light. God sends a person to stand in the gap and to say, not on my watch. This is right. This is wrong. Evil is evil. And he calls it out and says it like it is. Now, of course, God doesn't need to do that. God, if he wanted, could absolutely wipe out darkness himself. He could wipe out Ahab. He could wipe out all those things, but he doesn't. He chooses to work through people. 
Okay, the time where God wipes it all out and wipes out evil and wipes out all the bad guys, that's called heaven. And there will be a time where that will happen, but that is not now. Now is the time where God works through people. Just as he did when he wanted to save mankind, he took flesh and became man and worked through humanity. Okay, it's called synergy, God and man working together. God works through humanity and that's what he does with Elijah. He gives man a chance to participate and he doesn't just take care of darkness, he calls soldiers of light. But the question is, for us today, as we look at Elijah, this hero, is who will step up to the plate and answer his call? Who will fight for what is right? Who will refuse to go with the flow? Who will refuse to go against culture and against what's popular and say right is right and wrong is wrong? Well, that was who Elijah was. Let's go now to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're only going to look at one verse today of, of Elijah, okay? But this verse speaks volumes. 1 Kings 17, 1. In the midst of all this darkness and Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Boom is what I want to say after that. Boom goes Elijah. He walks in uninvited, unannounced, okay? No, like, hey, do you got a minute? Or, hey, can I set up a meeting? He just strolls right in. No, long live the king. No, how's it going? No, hey, that was a good decree you made the other day. None of that stuff. No pleasantries, no nothing. He just walks in, waltzes in. Again, he's Chuck Norris. I picture him coming through the roof or through the window or something like that. He walks in and says, I'm Elijah, no rain unless I give the word, boom, and he walks right out. What I love too, okay, is that he actually, actually I made a mistake there. He did not introduce himself. He didn't say, I'm Elijah. He said, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. That's what he said, before whom I stand. And what I love about this is Elijah doesn't feel the need to even say his name. He focuses on what matters most. I am nobody, but I stand before the God of heaven and earth, the God of Israel, whom you have defied. And he's basically telling the most powerful man in the world at this time, the most powerful man, he's saying, you know what? I'm not that impressed with you. You're not that big a deal. I serve someone much bigger than you. I report to someone much higher than you. And Elijah, Elijah, remember from Tish, the Tishbite, from Tishbe, the city that was erased from history, a nobody from nowhere, no pedigree, no clout, says, look, I don't care about you with all due respect, Mr. King. I don't care much about you. No rain for you until I say so. And realize that no rain, like today you would say no rain, you'd be like, good. You know what? It's, it's, uh, it's too humid out there. Like we don't need any rain. No, no, no. Back then, no rain was not just like, you know, some of the, the grass will be brown or whatever it may be. No rain meant death. Okay. No rain meant no crops, meant nothing for the cattle, like, to, like the cattle would die. And it meant people would die. And if you think about three and a half years, Think how long three and a half years is. We're sitting here today in the year 2020. Okay, three and a half years. We're in the second half. So that means we're not going to see a drop of rain until 2024. You can imagine. That's not like a minor inconvenience. That's a death sentence on the people. People will die. Okay, cattle will die, which is their, 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 their livelihood. And Elijah says, you know what? You're evil. You're wicked. And this is what the God of heaven has pronounced on you. Elijah feared no man because he knew that he reported to someone much higher 
And this is kind of like our key thought for this series, okay? If you get this, this is the life of Elijah in a nutshell, is this. He who kneels before God can stand before anyone. He who kneels before God can stand before anyone. You know, as I see this great man of God, Elijah, who trusted in God and said, I don't care about a king. I don't care. I don't care that you can kill me, have me executed. I don't care about any of that stuff. The God before whom I stand says this. I think to myself, man, God must be so proud of Elijah. Man, God must be so proud. A father seeing his son saying, I trust in my daddy. I don't care about anybody else. My daddy said this. My daddy's going to take care of me. Man, God must have been so proud. I think of like David, when David stood before Goliath, similar way, and David said to Goliath, this big, huge guy, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin? Man, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have defied. And David looked at Goliath. Well, actually, David did like this. To David looked at you come to me with this. I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, whom you have defied. And he said to him, today, I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to cut your head off. And I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds. That's what David said. Puny little David, big old Goliath. I think God must have been so proud. I think God must have been so proud, just like he was when the three saintly youth that we read about in the book of Daniel were thrown by King Nebuchadnezzar into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar said, unless you worship this idol, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to throw you in the furnace. I'm going to make it really hot. And they were all like, ooh, we're so scared of the hot. Ooh. And they said to him, basically, look here, Nebuchadnezzar. Our God, whom we serve, man, he could take care of this fire in a heartbeat if he wanted. And he is not going to allow you to do anything to us unless he gives permission. And they said to him, we're not scared of you. Threw them in the fiery furnace. And he kept saying, make it hotter, make it hotter, make it hotter. And the three youth inside, there was like a cool breeze. And they were like, hey, it's kind of chilly. Can you turn it up a little bit? Because he who kneels before God can stand before anyone. That was Elijah. Elijah said to the king Ahab, I don't fear you. I don't even respect you because I report to someone much higher. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage anyone, but just, just think of it like I'm the assistant to the CEO. The CEO, I'm the assistant to the CEO. And I'm worried about what the mailman says to me. Like, again, nothing against mailmen, okay, those who, I'm not saying it that way, but I'm saying I'm the assistant to the CEO, okay? And I'm in the office with the CEO every single day. And I'm worried about the guy down, okay, the, what are you talking about? The one I report to is much higher, is much greater. What am I worried about what, what someone down there says to me? I imagine Elijah in Tishbe, okay, before all this. And I imagine him, you know, again, he's zealous for the kingdom of God and what's right is what's right. And he sees all the wicked kings and, of course, it's driving him crazy. And then he hears of this new king, Ahab. And he's thinking to himself, this is going to be the one. Yes, this is going to be the one that's going to get this thing turned around, going to get the people of God back on track. This is going to be the one. And then he hears that his wife is a foreigner. That's not good. Then he hears that she's from Sidon, which is really not good. Then he hears that she brings some of the Baal worship over to Israel. And all of a sudden he starts to get going. And then he hears that some of the priests are converting. And then he hears that they're building the temples. And Elijah inside, his blood is start, starting to boil. And while everyone else is either in one of two camps, either criticizing and saying, oh, they're so bad and oh, that's such a problem. Or on the other hand, saying, you know what, sign me up. Okay, people kind of going in one of these two directions while everyone's going those two directions. Elijah, this is not on my watch. Not on my watch. I prayed and I asked God and God says, 
you. I'm looking for a soldier of light. God says, I could easily wipe, up, wipe out darkness, but I'm giving you a chance to participate in it by being a soldier of light. And Elijah packs his little suitcase or whatever he does, and he marches on down to the king's office. He doesn't care about appointment or no appointment. He goes through the security, and no one can stand in his way. He probably got these crazy eyes or something like that. And he marches in, and he says to the king, the God before whom I stand says the following, no rain unless I say so. And in fact, if you think about it, okay, He's marching into, he's saying the God before whom I stand, the king is supposed to be the one who stands before God. So he's telling him basically, king, you've lost your way. You used to, the king is supposed to be in front of God. You're supposed to be the servant of God. You've lost your way. The God before whom I stand, the one that you forgot along by the side of the road when you married that little Jezebel, okay? And when you took her, you forgot about the God, the God who I serve and the God who you were supposed to serve says this, no rain. And the irony of it is, the irony is that Baal is actually the god of rain. Okay, he's the god of fertility. Okay, he's what's called the rider of the clouds, the one who brought the rains and blessed the earth. He's the god of rain. And Elijah comes in and says, you believe in that god of rain? All right, watch what's going to happen for the next three and a half years. Boom. You go talk to your mailman about whatever. I'm going straight to the CEO. And I'm not scared because he who kneels before God can stand before anyone. I want to wrap up with three final thoughts, okay? Three kind of lessons learned real quick. Go through these real quick. Number one, no matter how bleak, no matter how bleak, God always has a plan. No matter how dark, no matter how bleak, no ma God always has something up his sleeve. Just when it looks like everyone has left and everyone stopped worshiping and the place is going down the toilet, God always has something. God is never painted in a corner. God is never like, oh no, what do I do now? I didn't see that one coming. No, no, no. When the world is at its darkest, when the world is at its darkest, get ready. Because God is preparing to send a messenger of light to make the place that much brighter. Number two, <clears throat> God's light comes through God's people or God's servants. <clears throat> God's light, we talked about this earlier, comes through God's people or God's servants. Again, God doesn't raise up an army of angels. God doesn't, doesn't blast people from heaven. He raises up people. God goes to the middle of nowhere, middle of Tishbe, a place where nobody even heard of, no one's ever heard of since. And he goes and he finds a no-name guy in a no-name town. He picks him up and says, you, you're going to be my messenger. You're going to be my soldier. Will you accept? I think God is probably doing the same thing today. And I think that today, as we look around and we see a lot of darkness around us, maybe it's you. Maybe you're the no-namer from the no-name city with the no-clout and the no-pedigree who God says, I'm calling you to do something great, to be a messenger of light. I love this verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That verse was true when it was written thousands of years ago, and I believe it's still true today. God is looking. God is scouring the earth, looking everywhere under every nook and cranny to find someone whose heart is loyal to him, someone who is zealous for his name like Elijah, someone whose heart burns when God is dishonored and the people of, of God are dishonored and the name of God is dishonored. God is looking for people that, like Elijah, are willing to stand in the gap, refuse to go with the culture, refuse to go with the flow, to stand up and say right is right, wrong is wrong, God's law won, Everything else is number two. 
And when God finds that person, you know what God will do? God will show himself strong on behalf of that person. God will fight through that person and God will fight for that person. And the one who stands before, kneels before God can stand before anyone. That's the person who can go through fire and water and the Lord will bring him out into a place of refreshing. That's the one whose serpents and scorpions may attack him, but they have no power over him because he's been given authority over them. That's the one that God will show himself strong when he sees a heart that trusts him and a heart that's loyal to him. And I believe, like I said a minute ago, the world needs those hearts today. The world needs people like Elijah today. The world today is more divided than it's ever been. The world today is in uncertainty and in fear and in darkness more than I can honestly say in my entire lifetime. And on top of all that, we are approaching an election. So it is only going to get worse before it gets better. The division, the fighting, the darkness. And I'll be honest. Can I be honest? Too many of God's people are focused on the wrong thing. Too many of God's people are focused on who's in the office versus who's on the throne. We're focused on getting our person into the office or getting that person out of the office versus getting God on his throne. The world needs more Elijahs today. People who kneel before him. People who are more zealous for his honor and for his agenda than their own agenda or whatever political agenda or whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. The world needs people whose hearts are loyal to God first and God's kingdom first and everything else is a far second. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, when God finds those hearts, it is no limit to what God will do in that person's heart, in that person's life and through that person in this world. No limit to God show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Last lesson learned. Number three, when we kneel before God, we'll never stand alone. When we kneel before God, we'll never stand alone. Elijah shows up in front of Ahab, no entourage, no posse, no, friend, no bodyguards, just him by himself. Actually, no, not just him by himself because with him comes all the power of heaven. And that is because he has the God of heaven who's standing by his side and I'm telling you, you may not feel it. You may feel alone at times, but when your heart is loyal to God and you are fighting for the kingdom of God, you are never alone. You will never be alone. God himself will fight for you and fight with you when your heart is loyal to him that way.